It's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles this morning, and we always hope that you bring your Bible with you, would encourage you to be opening in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning, our study will be confined to verses 5 and 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. While you're turning there, uh, I want to encourage you, if you have the chance on your way out today, to encourage both Victoria and Caroline. They will be in the lobby uh, immediately after the service, and so uh, make sure that you stop by and encourage them in their walk with the Lord. Be praying for them as well, just that they will be growing uh, in knowledge and understanding and love for the Lord, that they would be fighting sin, seeking to please Him, honoring Him with their lives, being a great witness and testimony for Him in the world in which they live and in their particular spheres of influence. So again, would encourage you to make sure that you stop by and encourage them today. Let me pray for us as we turn our attention to God's Word this morning. Pray with me, would you? Father, we are humbled this morning as we open your word. We know that your word confronts us with a thrice holy God, and it reveals back to us, it reflects back to us who who we are. And that is encouraging, but yet challenging at the same time. It points us to our desperate need for your mercy and your grace in our lives. And so, God, we do ask this morning, as we turn our attention to your word, that you would as a result of what we hear from your word, that you would cause our hearts to sing this morning as we talk about the great doctrine of adoption. Lord, we are amazed. We stand in awe of what you have done, what you have accomplished, what redemption has accomplished and applied for us. Thank you that your word so clearly teaches us what you have done for us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you know this morning that I am both thrilled and terrified at the same time to stand in this pulpit to be charged with the task of preaching your word to your people. Would you protect me, Lord? Would you eclipse me in my words? Would you allow what proceeds from my mouth to be only that which you want communicated? Lord, would you feed your sheep this morning? We pray. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the message this morning is entitled, Blessing Beyond Measure, Adopted as Sons. Last week, or actually two weeks ago, we uh, turned our attention to verses 3 and 4, and the message title was, uh, Blessing Beyond Measure, Chosen by God. This morning, Blessing Beyond Measure, Adopted as Sons, and then just to give you a foretaste of where we're going next week in verses 7 and 8, that message title will be Blessing Beyond Measure, Redeemed by His Blood. What we're doing is we're simply taking the, the, the immeasurable blessings that Paul begins to enumerate here in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, and we're seeking to understand them, and we're seeking to apply them as they come to us in the text. This morning we'll be looking at that wonderful doctrine of adoption as sons. But as we launch out this morning, let me say a few things and and even kind of hark back to last uh, time we met. I I know that two weeks ago when we met last, we waded into some undoubtedly deep waters together when we talked about the doctrine of God's sovereignty in election. And I realize this. I, I realize that in a room this large, there may be differing thoughts and opinions and understandings as it pertains to what I referred to as the doctrines of grace. And as we talked about God's sovereignty and election, that might have encouraged some of you. 
It may have raised questions in some of you, um, and, and it may have caused a little bit of challenging in your heart and in your soul in, in some of you. And I want to say this this morning. Good men differ on the specifics of some of the doctrines of grace. Good men differ as it pertains to some of the specifics or some of the intricacies of how those doctrines work themselves out or, or play out, so to speak, in our lives. But the beauty of expository preaching, which expository, by the way, just means explaining or expounding. We're committed to that here, expository preaching. Uh, that's why we looked at verses 3 and 4 a couple of weeks ago. We're in 5 and 6 this week, 7 and 8. And we'll just continue to move on verse by verse through God's divinely revealed word towards us. But expository just means explaining or expounding. And one of the beauties of expository preaching is that, number one, it protects me as a pastor from riding a hobby horse. It, it protects me from, from hounding my own personal issues because I'm confronted with the text. What does the text say? What does the text mean? And how does the text apply? That's my task every Sunday as I stand in this pulpit. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply? And so expository preaching provides some protection in that it keeps us from riding hobby horses, but it also provides protection in that it keeps us from, from skirting around or not dealing with those issues or those doctrines or those texts which may be particularly challenging to us. So great protection uh, as it pertains to expository preaching. Expository preaching doesn't use the text as a springboard into, into other Bible talk. In other words, we don't come, uh, and I don't read the verse, and then we, we get off into no man's land. Expository preaching takes the text and makes the text the focus of the preaching, which is what I, by God's grace, endeavor to do every Sunday when I stand in this pulpit, is to take the text and to make the text the focus of the preaching, the focus of the message. Let me say a few things here before we uh, launch into our study together for this morning about intricacies and distinctions, okay? I think intricacies and distinctions are important when it comes to theology. And because intricacies and distinctions are important to theology, intricacies and distinctions are important in preaching, as well. As a matter of fact, for some doctrines, precision in interpretation and application can mean the difference between heaven and hell. Let me explain. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 will be there shortly. Catalog back in your mind if you can. I hope you have it memorized. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Intricacy or precision and in interpretation and application of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 will split eternity. Paul writes, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own works, so that no man can boast. We get that wrong, and we miss everything. And so, I just use that as an example to say that, that intricacies and distinctions, when we're talking about theological matters, and we're talking about God's Word, they're important. Uh, we, we, we shouldn't just say, well, well why, why does it matter? Or why do we have to talk about that? Well, we talk about that, one, because we talk about that which the text brings up. Again, the beauty of expository preaching, uh, and because intricacies and distinctions are important. I think it's always good, it's always profitable to be growing in our understanding of who God is and what his divine word has revealed to us. And oftentimes that requires that we ask hard questions and seek by God's grace to give answer or at least to give some clarity to those challenging 
questions. We want to be, as Paul described the Colossians, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. Okay? Intricacies and distinctions are important. Now, hold that in one hand and hold what I'm about to tell you in the other hand. While intricacies and distinctions are important, having said that, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, when the curtain closes on this age, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his blazing glory, the question will be asked isn't, where did you land on the issue of God's sovereignty in election? It's an important question. And we should seek to be growing and understanding how, how that works out and how that applies. But that isn't the question that will divide eternity. The question that we will be asked when we stand toe-to-toe with the Lord Jesus Christ also isn't, where did you land when it comes to the extent of the atonement? Or how far does Jesus' blood apply? Or who does Jesus' blood atone for? Or who did Jesus die for? That's an important question, but it's not the question we're going to be asked when the curtain closes on all time. We're we're not going to be asked how we understood the relationship of man's will and soul-captivating grace. That's an important question, and it's one that we should be seeking to understand and grow in so much as we can in our humanness and in our finiteness. But that's not going to be the question that will be asked when we stand before Christ. Don't miss me here. These are important questions. They're just not the ultimate question. The question that you and I will be asked when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His blazing glory is, were you found in Christ? That will be the question that will divide all eternity. Was your hope built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness? We cannot get that question wrong. If we get that question wrong, we've missed everything. Okay, So I just want you to understand here that while distinctions and intricacies are important, we shouldn't just toss them out the window and say, why does it matter and why does it apply and why do we even have to go there? At the same time, good men differ on some of these issues, on the particulars of some of these issues. And that's okay. We want to be growing. We want to be challenged. We want to be seeking to understand God's Word insofar as we can. But the ultimate question is, were you found in Christ? We must be unswervingly certain about that question. So with that as a bit of preface this morning, before we turn our attention to our text, let's do so now. Let me have you stand with me as we read God's Word, if you're able. Paul, the human author here, Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author pins the following words in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. You may be seated. Number one this morning on your outline, if you're taking notes, is this. God's adopting love makes us a part of his family. God's adopting love makes us a part of his family. And just so we're all aware on the onset this morning, we're going to be heavy on the front end. And so when I finish point one and you look at your watch and you realize we have but just a few moments to go, that's by 
design and not by default. Now, having said that, we may not make it all the way through the message, and that's okay, but I, I realize and acknowledge on the front end that we're going to be top-heavy this morning. I want to draw your attention just to the very first phrase in verse 5. That is everything that appears before the first comma, probably, in your Bible. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Pause right there. And actually, let's pause at the first three words. Before we move on from he predestined us, let's put the car in park for a few minutes and let's stop here and let's deal with these three words before we put it back in drive and seek to move on in the text. That word predestined, it's a beautiful word. It's a colorful word in your Bible. It simply means this to define or to mark out or to design or to determine beforehand. It's actually a compound word in the original language uh, from the little preposition in Greek, pro, just means before or prior, and the word orizo just means to define or to mark out or to specify. So to prior define or to mark out before or to specify before. Compound word in the original language, that's what predestined means means to mark out in advance. Peter used the word predestined in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Don't turn there for the sake of time, but I just want to draw your attention to this. Peter used that word predestined in Acts chapter 4 as he recounted the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is what he said. He said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, those who murdered Jesus, after having done their worst, those who killed the Son of Man, merely succeeded in fulfilling God's plan. Merely succeeded in fulfilling God's eternal plan. God predestined, and as such, redemption's drama unfolded just as he marked out in advance or determined beforehand. Now, there's a distinction here between election, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and predestination. And I think it's an important distinction. Let me help you understand what I mean here. Election specifies the who of redemption. Election specifies the who, whereas predestination specifies the how. Let me reword that for you. Another way to say it is this. Election emphasizes the people, whereas predestination emphasizes the means. How did God do it? Here are the people God chose, predestined. Here's how he did it. Here's the means or the method or the mode in which he did what he did. What Paul is saying here is that God, in all of his manifold wisdom, designed and marked out a plan in advance, not only to redeem a people for his own good pleasure, but also to bring those very people into his family by the means of adoption. That was God's prior decision. God marked that out in advance. That was his settled, unthortable will. God cannot be backed into a corner or coerced to change his mind or his plan. It is settled, it is fixed in the heavens, the psalmist writes for us. That is God's plan, his will. 
And so God designed and marked out a plan, namely to adopt us, that's the focus of the text here, to redeem a people for his own good pleasure, but also to bring those very people whom he redeemed into his family and to do so by the means of adoption. Now, it's interesting to note here that that word in your Bible, predestined, that particular word in the original language is never used in relation to man. It's always used in relation to God. Never attributed to man and his decision-making or planning. You know, in our finiteness, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Therefore, we can't make plans that are sure. We can make plans, and we would be wise to make plans. As a matter of fact, the, the, the Proverbs tell us to be prudent, to be mindful, to be wise, to make plans. But in our finiteness, we don't know what tomorrow brings. And so we don't know that those plans can be certain. But God predestines. And what God predestines comes to pass every time without exception and without fail. Okay? That particular word there, only used of God in your Bible, never used to speak about man's decision-making or man's planning. James talks about our decision-making and our planning in James chapter 4. This will probably be a familiar text to you. He says, Come now, you who say, Tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, for your life is but a mere vapor or but a mere mist that appears for a little while and then quickly vanishes. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we'll live and we'll do this or do that. Wise Solomon said it this way. He said, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You see, our best laid plans oftentimes come to naught. But that isn't the case with God. God doesn't make plans that can be thwarted. God said of himself in Isaiah 46, verses 10 and 11, he said, I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Now, here is where that word predestined is glorious then. With all that as a backdrop, God's will, His plan cannot be thwarted. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. No one can back Him into a corner and make Him change His mind or force Him to alter His predetermined plan. Here's where that's glorious. God has lovingly determined with an unchanging and unthoughtable determination to adopt those whom he saves into his family. That doesn't make the hair on your arm stand up. The only thing that will is a new heart. Predestination is always for a God-designed purpose. And here in this instance in our text, that purpose is adoption as sons. He predestined us For adoption, he marked out in advance the course, planned in advance the course. The course for what? The course that we who are found in Christ might be adopted as his sons and his daughters. You know, many of us have at least a cursory understanding of human adoption, even if we've never adopted another child into our family. But what does it mean to be adopted by God? Let me take you back thousands of years, okay, and just give you a super brief uh, few words here. The nation of Israel was referred to as God's son. 
in a corporate sense, not in a saving sense, but in a corporate sense. The nation of Israel was referred to or was regarded by God as his son. I will be their God. They will be my people. That relationship was established at the exodus from Egyptian captivity. Moses was instructed to say to Pharaoh these words, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So there's a corporate sense there in the Old Testament. But it's interesting that adoption here in Ephesians chapter 1 is applied by Paul to every believer individually and distinctly. What was a corporate relationship with God in the Old Testament, the relationship of Israel to God, is now referred to by Paul here in Ephesians 1 as an individual and distinct relationship that is to be enjoyed by all who know Jesus Christ savingly. Adoption is the act of bringing a son into a family who was not a son by birth. Spiritually, adoption is a, it's a judicial act which bestows on the believer a new status and a new standing. It's an act of transferring one from an alien family into the family of God. And it's a loving act. It's an incredibly loving act. As a matter of fact, John writes this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, See what kind of love or how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is exactly what we are, he says. How great is God's love that he has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. God's adopting love towards us. God's adopting us into his family is an incredibly loving act. But that isn't the only relationship that has changed. Not only has God become our father, which we'll talk about that here uh, more in just a few minutes, but there's been another relationship that has also changed. And that is our relationship to God the Son. You see, he has become our elder brother. We've become an heir to the family of God by means of adoption. So now, not only is God our father, but his son, Jesus Christ, is our brother. Is our brother everything that Jesus Christ is entitled to in the family, so we as believers, if we are united to him, are entitled to. Maybe entitled was the wrong word there. That brings with it some baggage. So we enjoy all of the, the blessings and all the benefits and all the love that exists between the Father and between the Son. Jesus Christ has become our brother. Think about this, speaking about Jesus Christ. He is my creator, my king, my prophet, my priest, my lord, my master, my life, my sustainer, my savior, my deliverer, my redeemer, my righteousness, my mediator, my advocate, my shepherd, my savior, my deliverer, my redeemer, my righteousness, my unblemished lamb, my door, my way, my living water, my bread of life, my light, my strength, my refuge, my hope, my rock, my living stone, my foundation, the captain of my salvation, my Messiah, the prince of peace, my all in all. And yet at the exact same time, he's not ashamed to call this frail, weak, saved by grace man his brother. You think about who he is. 
And at the same time, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he is unashamed, if we know him savingly, to call us his brother. Though they're certainly related, it's important to note that there is also a distinction between regeneration and adoption. Regeneration, or being born again, is what gives us a a new heart, a renewed heart and new character. Whereas adoption grants us new position and new status. That's, That's pretty important that you understand that. Regeneration, though how how redemption is accomplished and applied all links together. At the same time, there is a distinction between regeneration, being born again, being given a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, I'll remove from you a heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, put my spirit in you, and cause you to walk in your ways. Yes, that was a promise made to national ethnic Israel, but we see that same promise echoed in the New Testament. Therefore, it applies to us. Regeneration, being given a new heart, being, being made alive again. But adoption, on the other hand, speaks to our status or our position with God. Regeneration asks the question, how can I be made right with God? We talk about justification. The fact that Jesus Christ has justified us and he has imputed to our otherwise bankrupt accounts his righteousness. That's regeneration, justification. But adoption, on the other hand, answers this question, how can I be loved by God? How can I be brought into his family? Adoption into God's family grants us more than that which our justification secures. Let me explain what I mean by that. Hypothetically, just track with me. Hypothetically, it's conceivable that a person could be declared righteous freed from the consequences of sin, freed from the condemnation that sin brings, but not given the status of heir of God. Just track with me. Hypothetically, it's possible that a person could be justified, declared guiltless, but yet not be given the grace of adoption and called an heir of God. We see this in human courtrooms all the time. A judge will declare a person not guilty without adding this language. From this day forward, I regard you as my son and my heir. You see, there's a declaration, but there's not an adoption. God could have redeemed us without bringing us into his family, but he didn't. But he didn't. He justified us in Christ because of Jesus' shed blood for us. And then... He brought us into the family. He adopted us into his family. He has become our father. Not just the judge who declares the, the, the faultless verdict, but the father who embraces the son. And Jesus Christ, though he is the captain of our salvation, becomes our elder brother. We enjoy everything as believers, united to Christ, that Jesus Christ enjoys with the Father. I love that. I love that's that's the doctrine of adoption. God could have redeemed us without bringing us into his family, but he didn't. You see in our adoption we're given some of the greatest blessings that we will know and enjoy for all eternity. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you kind of the iceberg view of some of those blessings. There is volumes have been written on the blessings that are ours as a result of our adoption. 
But let's just, let's just look at the tip of the iceberg of a few of these blessings. Number one, we have a new father. We're not born into this world, children of God. The Bible's clear about the fact that we're all born into this world, children of Adam, under the curse of sin and therefore condemned. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be there shortly, Paul refers to us as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Outside of Christ, that, that is the banner that hangs over us. That is the sentence that hangs over us. Sons of disobedience and children of wrath. But in Christ, we've been adopted out of that family. And consequently, as a result of our being adopted out of that old family, we now have no responsibility to our old tyrant father, the prince of the power of the air. He has no claim on your life. He has no dominion. He can tempt, yes, but he has no dominion, no no authority with a capital A. We've been adopted out of that family, out of Adam's family, and saved by the second Adam. We also have a new identity and a new legal standing. You see, adoption transfers the once disenfranchised son from the serfdom of, the serfdom of Satan's slave camp to the family circle of God's favor. Because of our adoption, we're no longer identified with Adam. We're identified with the second Adam, the greater Adam. We're no longer enslaved to sin and death. There's been a total break with the old family. The old life has been completely erased. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, what? Some of you have memorized. I would commend it to your memory. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things have been made new. We're new creations in Christ. That means all of our previous spiritual debts and obligations have been legally canceled. Let me commend to your study the book of Galatians after we're done with Ephesians. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that we stood condemned by the written letter. We stood condemned by the law. But Jesus Christ has, triumphed, has been triumphant over the rulers and over the authorities. He's, he's broken the curse. He's broken the written curse that stood against us by becoming a curse for us. How so? Paul says, because cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. All of our previous spiritual debts and obligations legally canceled were we're a part of a new family. All of our sin, past, present, and future, has been forgiven. That's not a license to sin, by the way. Should we sin because grace increases? Absolutely not. By no means, Paul says. A better interpretation is, no way, Jose. But adoption does turn slaves into sons. How about a new image? We gain also a new image. Human parents can adopt a child into their home and they can love that adopted child every bit as much as they love their own natural children, but they can never give that adopted child their, their own nature, their own nature, their own distinct image and nature. Yet that's what God miraculously does when he brings us into his family. Those who are adopted into God's family receive God's spirit. 
And as a result of having God's Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance which is to come, we'll learn about that in a handful of weeks, because of that Spirit, we now bear increasing conformity to God's Son. That's Romans 8, 28 and 29, right? We see the word again, by the way, He predestined us. What? For what? That we might be conformed to the image of His Son. We get a new image. We, we begin to look more and more like like the person of Jesus Christ. How about citizenship? We get a new citizenship. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Well, what does that mean, Paul? It means at one time we were strangers and aliens. But now you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. How about new security? We get a new security. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 8. Don't turn there. He says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. Let me ask you this question. What Paul's saying there is there should be a sense in which the spirit of God that resides in us as believers confirms and encourages us that yes, we are indeed found in Christ. Yes, we are indeed sons. If that sense of confirmation is not there, then we need to be asking some other questions. Is there a sense of confirmation? Yes, I'm found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and His righteousness. I love that expression, Abba, Father. It's the equivalent of daddy. It's a child's expression. And it conveys intimacy and tenderness and love and trust. Let me ask you this question. Is that how you relate to God? Intimacy, love, trust, tenderness. In Christ, he's our father. He's our father. He's our provider and our protector. He corrects and He chastens. He lavishes us with His adoring love. There's security in His arms. Jesus spoke about that security in John chapter 10. This will be a familiar text to many of you. Jesus said, I give them eternal life. Speaking about the sheep. I love John 10, by the way. Want to learn about the good shepherd? John chapter 10. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I mean, here's, here's the reality, folks. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not very strong. And so if I were to make a fist, it wouldn't take too much strength to begin to pry my fingers back. Whatever was in my grip could be easily obtained. What Jesus is telling us in John chapter 10 is what is in the grip of the Father is not easily obtained. As a matter of fact, he says, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Talk about security. What's security? I enjoy reading the Puritans often. Those are just old dead guys that have written things in, in our past things that are very helpful. Of course, when we read the Puritans, we still need to be discerning readers, as we do when we read anything, right? We want to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Correct? We want, we want to be growing as discerning readers. Uh, I may have said this before, but let me take the opportunity to say it once again, if I haven't, just for your encouragement and edification. Do you know one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to be? A local Christian bookstore. 
That is one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to be. It's, you just, not every Christian bookstore, that exception, but many. You walk right in, and what are you confronted with? What, what are they saying? Buy this, buy this, buy this. What is number one, two, three, four, and five? And oftentimes, they're, they're rated as New York Times bestsellers. Hey, brothers and sisters, if it's a New York Times bestseller, read it very discerningly. Very discerningly. Anyway, I digress. Back to Puritans. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Brooks once penned the following words in, relations, in relation to the believer's security. I love this. He said, I am purchased by him and therefore I am his. I am his by conquest, I am his by election, and I am his by adoption. I am his by covenant, I am his by marriage, I am wholly his, I am uniquely his, I am universally his, I am eternally his. I once was a slave, but now I'm a son. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was in darkness, but now I'm in light. I once was a child of wrath, but now I'm an heir of heaven. I once was Satan's bondservant, now I'm God's free man. I once was under the spirit of bondage, but now I'm under the spirit of adoption that justifies my person, absolves me of all my guilt and sin, and indelibly saves my soul. That, friends, is security. That's security. Number two on your outline. God's adopting love is motivated by his good pleasure. God's love is motivated his adopting love is motivated by his good pleasure. Let me draw your attention to the second phrase in verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. I want to draw your attention to two words in this short phrase. The first word, purpose. The second word, will. That word purpose there, it's the Greek word eudokia. It's a beautiful word. It's a colorful word. It has the idea of good will. Of, of having goodwill or favor or pleasure. The, the New American Standard Bible, that's what you've got open in your lap there, beautifully translates it as kind intention. I love that. I think it's very accurate. God's kind intention. You see, God's adoption is motivated by his kindness and his love. As a matter of fact, if you can remember back two weeks ago, I mentioned this. I mentioned that the little verb chose in verse 4. Let your eyes move back there. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That little verb chose there, it's reflexive. You remember what that means? It's really important. The fact that that little verb chose is reflexive means that it's to be understood as possessive. In other words, what God chooses, he chooses for himself. What, who God adopts, he adopts for himself to be his. You see, God's elective choosing is motivated by his love, but so is his adopting grace. It's, a, it's motivated by his love. His kind intention. How about that word will? It's the Greek word philema. It carries with it the idea of desire and resolve. Desire and resolve. God wills what he wills because it pleases him to do so. Remember Psalm 115.3 from two weeks ago. Our God is where? Where does he reside? Our God is in heaven. And what does he do? Whatever he pleases. He can't lie, die, or deny himself. Outside of that, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. 
God's plan is unthwartable. He's determined in His redemptive plan. Having said that, a person can be determined or resolved to do something without having the slightest bit of delight in what they're doing. Let me give you an illustration. The dentist. Sure, there's probably one or two in here, and I'm sorry. We can be determined or resolved to do something without having the slightest delight in doing it. I have no delight in going to the dentist. It's a, it's a, it's a necessity, but it's an evil necessity for me. But Paul wants us to know that God's adopting love isn't simply a result of sheer determination, though predestination by definition implies determination. Okay, it implies determination, but rather it's the result of supreme delight. Supreme delight. God delights in saving guilty sinners and then bringing them into his family. You see, adoption is motivated by the kind intention and the good pleasure of a gracious and merciful God. And it's paramount that we understand that. It's paramount that we understand that. Number three. God's adopting love sets his glory on display. Look at the first phrase in verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Friends, God is always, always without exception, purposeful. He's never arbitrary. He's never whimsical or capricious. He never flies by the seat of his pants. God always acts with an erring precision and definitive purpose in everything he does. Two weeks ago, we... We talked about the subjective purpose of God in our election. And that, that purpose was this, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's the subjective or the experiential purpose in our election. But what Paul does here in verse 6, he gives us the objective, the overarching, the paramount, the pinnacle, the Mount Everest reason why God does everything God does. And the reason that God does everything that God does is for His glory. God loves His glory. He's jealous for His glory. He'll give His glory to no other. If God were not jealous for His glory, if God were not selfish for His glory, then God would be an idolater. But we know that's not the case. God is jealous for, He's zealous for His glory. Here's what that means to us. That means that both our election and our adoption, though we are the wonderful beneficiaries of God's glorious grace, those two blessings, election and adoption, they aren't primarily about us. They're primarily about Him. God has designed salvation in such a way that only He can get the glory for it. Now, let me take you back to two weeks ago. Remember that blessed be God? I said that be verb isn't there in the original. It's blessed is God. It's probably a better translation. When we talk about the fact that God does everything God does for the overarching pinnacle reason of his own glory, that means even our own salvation is not primarily about us, but it is primarily about him. That leads us to say, blessed is God. I'm just the beneficiary of divine grace. Blessed be God. I didn't deserve it. 
I didn't merit it. He didn't owe it to me in the slightest. Matter of fact, I, not, not only did I not merit it or does he not owe it to me, but I had turned my back. I was that sheep in Isaiah 53 that had turned away and gone my own way. And yet he stepped in and took that hard, callous, cold, dark, dead heart and breathed life into it again. Blessed is God. Blessed is He. We mope around sometimes as though we have nothing to be thankful for. When we stop and recount the blessings that we have in salvation alone, wow, blessed be God. Blessed be God. We're simply the beneficiaries of extravagant grace. God's grace is going to be praised forever and ever, friends. Look one chapter ahead in Ephesians chapter 2. I have three, two, one, time. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages... That's important there. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That phrase there, in the coming ages, friends, that means for eternity. That means that we, along with the whole host of of heaven's worshipers, will be glorifying God's glorious grace for all eternity. Remember I said that is the preoccupation. That is the employment of eternity. So we ought to be doing now what we will spend all eternity doing. Let's get real used to doing it now because that is the employment of eternity, praising the glory of God's grace. Let me show it to you. Don't turn here, but Revelation chapter 7, John gives us a foretaste or a peek into the window, so to speak, of the coming ages. This is what he says. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and all peoples and all languages standing there before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice. And here's glorifying God for His glorious grace. Here it comes. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. That's the coming ages. We will glorify God's glorious grace for eternity days unending. With that being said, I don't need to say anything else about point number four. But this is what it is. God's adopting love is evidenced by His grace. God's adopting love is evidenced by His grace. Paul writes, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. With which He has blessed us in the Beloved. A literal translation there is, He has begraced us in the Son of His love. With which He has begraced us in the Son of His love. Let me ask you this question, friends. Do you know the Son of His love? Are you intimately acquainted with Him by faith and repentance? If not, we would encourage you to repent and trust Christ right where you sit this morning. Right where you sit. 
Cast yourself upon Jesus Christ's matchless mercy and grace. Call upon His name. Confess your need for Him. Fall at His feet. Now, there's one name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do it now. Come to Him now. Trust Him now. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning and we are so encouraged as we, as we peer into your word. Lord, I pray that our souls would sing as we think about your adopting love for us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, what blessings we've been graced with. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.